Well, good evening, all. Did the resurrection already happen? I didn't hear anybody. <laughs> I said, good evening, all. All right, that's, that's a little better. I uh, just want to give a hearty thank you again to uh, Grace Bible Church. You guys are an awesome host church. You've intentionally gone out your way multiple times to say hi, to greet us, to welcome us. So just uh, appreciate your hospitality. And to the other churches here, so it's a good time to be here for our first time. And we are excited to be here with you guys to, to learn and to grow in Christ to learn about him, to grow in him, to love him. And it's just been a sweet time. So again, thank you guys for opening your arms to welcome Breen Bible Church. We're glad to be here. For a time in our word, would you just start with me with a word of prayer before we dive into what the Lord has for us? Would you pray with me? Our gracious God in heaven, we do give you praise. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. We thank you for this truth that are found in Christ. And in Christ, we have everything. In Christ, we are built up to the fullness. In Christ, we have wealth and riches and inheritance. In Christ, we have everything. Father, I pray that your son would be lifted up this evening, that every eye, every soul would behold this Christ that we speak much of. So would you prepare every heart by the power of your spirit for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians 15. We've already spent some rich time studying the resurrection. We looked at why the resurrection, why does it even matter? You know, why are we up here on this mountain talking about the resurrection? Why does it matter? And Spencer, Pastor Spencer walked us through even beyond that. How do we defend the resurrection? If the resurrection is true, there are obviously opponents. And there are many, many in some of your schools, many in some of your neighborhoods would say you're a fool to believe that. How do we defend the resurrection? But tonight, I really want you to think about why the resurrection matters for you personally. Why does it matter for you personally? How does the resurrection change your life? Think about it. If Christ was raised, and if you're trusting in Christ, believer, do you understand that one day you will rise again too, bodily? Do you realize that? That we're not just talking about some theoretical concept. If the resurrection is true, and if you're in Christ, then that means you will one day rise again too. Amen. The resurrection ought to give you the greatest hope for the future, but with a present impact today. Hope for the future, but present impact for today, this evening, right now. It removes all fear of death, but it also instills peace within your soul. Today, you want peace? You want this comfort? Do you want this assurance? This hope of glory that we've been really drawing out so far, it should have a profound impact on your soul. Now, I know you may have late nights, early mornings, but listen here. What I want you to understand here is to understand why the resurrection matters for your soul. Why should the resurrection even matter to you now? I mean, think about it. It's in the future, right? That's a future event. I can worry about that later. There are more important things I have to, to worry about now. That's the wrong attitude. If the resurrection does not grip your soul now, there's something wrong. 
Let me explain it this way. If your grandparents gave you the keys in hand right now to a 2023 Ferrari GTS, gave you the keys right now in your hand, it's in the garage waiting for you. The only thing is you can have it after you graduate high school and after you finish college. You have the keys in hand right now. If that were happening to you right now, how would that impact what you did at school? Would you want to spend a fifth year in high school? Would, would you want to spend a fifth year in college? Would you be earnest to finish your studies? Why? These keys in hand, I want the Ferrari. I got a car waiting for me. You see that, that very small motivation impacts what you're doing right now. That even though it's in the future, you know this car is certain. It's in the garage. I see it every day. I take out the trash. That car is mine. But yet I got to finish school. No, I've learned a lesson. I have three small kids. Uh, five. Savannah's five. Malachi is two. My youngest is eight months. Judah. And I've learned a lesson. If we're going to do something with our kids, say if we're going to go to the fair, or they love to go to Knott's Berry Farm, if you've ever been. If we're going to go there, I've learned a lesson not to tell my kids we're going to Knott's Berry Farm until maybe like three days before. You know why? Because what would happen if I told them a month before, hey, in September, we're going to Knott's Berry Farm. You know what would happen between now and September? Hey, hey Daddy, how many more days should we go to Knott's Berry Farm? How many more days is that? And I have to, I have to spell it. Okay, 45. No, no, 44 and a half if you count today. But well, if you're going to lose a day of the travel, so really like 43. Okay, okay, okay. Next day. Wait, so how many days? 43. Okay, later on that afternoon. Which, so how many days again? 43, Savannah. No, I don't get that in but you see what happens because if they know something's coming what does that do to their soul I want it well, it's, it's coming and so now they're excited about it even now because they realize that what's in their future not oh, spray farm the fair you see what something in the future is not just sort of some sort of high lofty element in the in the air but it's really something that impacts you right now And that's what the resurrection should do for us. As we think about the resurrection, we think about what Christ has done. Beloved, it should stir your soul profoundly. You should think about these things and marvel in them. Any hope that God offers should never leave you complacent. If you think about the resurrection, and all we've talked about in your small group, and it leaves you kind of just, eh, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. If it doesn't stir your soul with joy, with peace, with eagerness, there's something wrong. Because that future hope should have an abiding impact today. You get me? Today. It should happen right now. So the resurrection, why does it matter? I'm going to filter down a little bit. The resurrection matters because the resurrection should purify your perspective on life. I want you to get that. The resurrection matters because the resurrection should purify your perspective on life. It should purify your perspective on life. And how does it purify our perspective? Well, I want to remind us of four things, four realities in how the resurrection purifies your perspective on life. It purifies it by reminding you of four realities. All right, four realities we're going to walk through. The first reality is that it reminds us of our problem. The resurrection reminds us of your problem. What is your problem? If you want to know and appreciate the hope, 
Listen here, you have to realize what the problem is before you understand the hope. Let me ask it this way. Let's start here. What is our chief problem? Even before we talk about here, what is our chief problem as humans? Thank you. Good job. Sin. You guys are awake. Our chief problem is sin. Sin with the holy God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and worldly unrighteousness. That sin is our chief problem with God. Because you were born in sin, initially in birth, you have a problem with God. And what is that problem? Your sin. We all have that problem. I'm the chief of sinners you're looking at. I had the problem with sin. We have a problem here. Now, beloved, if you're in Christ, as we've been singing about all these past couple days, we're saved from sin if you're in Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Are you saved from sin? This chief problem is solved completely how? In Christ. It's solved in Christ. Because if you're truly trusting in Christ, if he has saved you from the punishment of sin, this chief problem is no longer your problem. As Pastor Spencer walked us through in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that I delivered to you of first importance of verse 3, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Our sins are dealt with in full. But there's still a problem that remains if you're in Christ. There's still a problem we have to look at. Because even for the Christian who has repented of their sins and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're saved, but there's still a problem. And what's that problem? You still have your fleshly body. You're a Christian, but yet you still have a fleshly body. And that fleshly body is rid with sin still. You've been saved. You've been born again. But you still have this weight, this dead man walking with you, your flesh, this sinful nature. That's why our problem here is clearly stated in verse 50 of chapter 15 in verse Corinthians. Look with me at chapter verse 50. And now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what is our problem? He says clearly that flesh and blood cannot what? Enter the kingdom of heaven. That even though saved, says flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When he's speaking of the kingdom of heaven here, he's speaking of the eternal state that the believer have with God. Christ will come. He will establish a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. But after that kingdom, he will he'll usher us in into the eternal state. We will be with God forever. And into that kingdom, he's speaking here. Flesh and blood cannot enter that kingdom. And so the problem he wants to nail down, for, even for the Corinthians here, is the problem is, is you still have flesh and blood. And there's no flesh, no blood will enter the kingdom of heaven, period. The resurrection reminds us of our problem because our problem is we still have a fleshly body. Now, we didn't talk about it, but before this passage, Paul talks about, well, how about those who died in Christ? If you were to die in Christ now, Paul explains, is that if you're in Christ, when Christ returns, he will raise your body first bodily from the grave. And that body that was sown, a perishable body, will be raised imperishable body. So you will be risen like Christ with a pure glorified body. So if you die and Christ comes, you will have a glorified body. But there's still a problem. Can Christ come at any moment? Yes and yes. We believe in the imminent return of Christ, meaning he can come in any minute. I can't even, I may not even finish my sermon, he'll come. Amen and amen. He can come at any point. But what happens to us? We're, we haven't died. So how's our body going to be glorified, redeemed, so that we can enter eventually into the eternal state? 
our problem is addressed eventually, and that's what he says. He established there, if you, if you died, your body be raised. But what about those? What about us? Or what about those who will be alive when Christ returns? What happens to their body? What would happen to them? So this is the big problem stated clearly for us. The resurrection reminds us of our problem. Our problem is, yes, believer, you're saved from your sin. Amen. But you still have this fleshly body. Second reality, the resurrection reminds us of our promise. Reminds us of our promise. What is your promise, believer? For the Christian, your current body consisting of flesh and blood, it cannot enter the kingdom of heaven as we established. Now, I want you to let's first stop here. If you were to just read verse 50, and that's where Paul ended his letter, and he ended it saying, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, how hopeless that would be. Why? Because what's going to happen to my body? But here's the promise, because there's a promise now we want to realize with the resurrection. What is the promise? God will do something about that fleshly body. What will God do? Well, here's what I love what Paul does. He grabs our attention with the very first word in in verse 51. Now, excuse me, I'm I'm reading from New American Standard. I didn't ask before I preached what what standard you guys are using. So maybe a little bit different, but same word. But the first word in my translation in verse 51, it says, behold. May say something, okay, I see a lot of heads nodding. Something similar, behold, maybe see. Now Paul's saying that he's starting here, this thought now, this promise here, behold. And that's an imperative. Imperative is, it's it's a command, in other words. So he's commanding you, look, behold, and see. And what is it that we're called to see? What does he want you to see, believer? What is his promise here? Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. There are two things that Paul makes clear here. He says that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Two things he makes clear. We will not all sleep, and what is that? What is he saying? We're not all sleep? Yeah, not, we're not going to die. Not everyone will die. It's a euphemism, right? So, so I mean, you know, we say, oh, he, he passed away. Like, what did he pass away? What do you mean? He passed by me? Like, what do you mean, right? It's a euphemism. We know it means he died. That's what Paul's saying here. So we're not all going to die because he realizes that some will be alive when Christ returns. Even those who are in Christ will be alive when he returns. So he's saying not everyone will die. But also, everyone will be changed. Everyone. He already established now, it says that the dead will be raised imperishable. But he's saying now, everyone will be changed. We do not all will sleep, but we will all be changed. Every single Christian will be glorified. Now, what do I mean by that? We have a resurrected body. This resurrected body is a physical, literal body. You ever thought about that? That your glorified body will be even more real than you think and can touch even right now. That this is not just some sort of spiritual on the cloud floating there, and I'm just kind of spiritual there with, with, with no substance. No, you're going to have a physical, literal body as a believer with a glorified body. That Jesus is going to do that to those who are in him. And he says this is a, a raised physical body. Now we will look at what this means in a little bit, but for now I want to talk about when and how this is going to happen, this glorified body for the believer. We're here, we're talking about the promise now of the resurrection. Now when and how this is going to happen. 
this passage that we read, especially these verses, it's, it's speaking about the rapture. Now, immediately when I say rapture, it's a hot button word in Christian circles. Even in, even in our circles, though you say the word rapture, that can start a debate. I don't know if you've ever had a debate about the rapture, but when it's going to happen and all these things. My goal now in, this, in my time here is not to unpack the timing of this rapture. Although I will share briefly of what I believe this rapture, what I think scripture teaches this rapture will happen. But we can't spend all our time there because there are more important things that Paul's going after here. That this rapture here, he's talking about or this idea that's not foreign to scripture. I mean, if you're a Christian, if you believe the Bible, you believe in a rapture. Like, there's no debate. So there are debates about the rapture, but it's about when it's going to happen. You can't say there's no rapture. Think about someone in the yellow name. Who's been raptured in scripture? Elijah. Elijah. Enoch. Enoch. Right? They've been raptured. Right? We, we, there, there's, there's a clear rapture of taking happen. First Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about it as well. In our passage here, he's speaking out you're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It's clear. Scripture teaches of a rapture. But the question is when? And obviously I believe that the rapture is going to happen uh, before. The, the, when Christ comes, he's going to rapture his church. He's going to start the, the, the seven-year tribulation. Then he'll return and set up his thousand-year reign here on earth, which enters in the eternal state. But that's beside our point now. Well, what Paul's looking at more is, is, is how this is going to happen. He's saying how this happened. How is this going to happen? Look at again verse 52. How is he saying this is going to happen? We're all going to be changed, but verse 52 says how that's going to happen. Look, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. There's a lot of descriptions here he's, he's drawing out, but, but pay attention to the first description here. In a moment, it's, we don't really have a good word that conveys what he's trying to say here, but the closest word that we've used actually from this word in our language is the word atom, like in science. An atom is one of the smallest units, right? You can't really split an atom without exploding. Like an atom is a small, in other words, an indivisible moment of time. In a moment's time, he's saying immediately in the twinkling of an eye, as fast as you can blink, as fast as you can look from one direction to another, immediately we're all going to be changed, he's saying. This is going to happen quickly. It's instantaneous is what he's getting at. That if Jesus were to come back right now, it would be an instant where he would rapture and take those who are in Christ. That this is an instantaneous event that he's saying here. I remember when I was a kid and my brother and I were playing, my, my dad told me and my brother to clean up the den and to organize it. And my brother and I, we did not do that. Instead, we decided to, instead of clean the den, we decided to play around. We decided to balance on the couches to see who can, we play island, right? You played island. We said we can jump across without touching the floor. We did all sorts of things. Everything but clean the den. And when my dad came down, actually came back, he was out, and he came back and he looked at the den, and he looked at us, and he said, I'm going to whoop your butt. <laughs> Both of you. And he looked at us, I'm like, <sighs> and like, my heart just sank. I'm like, oh. And then, he's, then he thought about it because I think he was angry. Now here, I'm not trying to give you this. So I, had, I had a good childhood. My, my dad's a godly man. My dad is one of the men in my life who I want to be like. If I can be like my dad, I'm a blessed man. All right? my, I had a good childhood. But obviously, of course, parents make mistakes. I'm a parent. I make mistakes. One thing my dad said in that, <laughs> in that discourse, after that point, we didn't clean the den. He said, you know what I'm going to do, Chris and Daryl? You didn't clean the den. I'm not going to punish you right now. But at any moment, when I want to, I'm going to punish you. And we're like, okay. <laughs> a little lapse in judgment, I think he would look back and say. But you know what? That kind of struck in us a kind of fear. Like, okay, when is it going to happen? I'm going to turn around the corner. I'm like, pop, pop, pop. You know, like, what's, <laughs> like what's, what is my dad going to do? 
I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, in one way, I was kind of relieved. I'm like, okay, we're not getting punished now, but it can happen tomorrow. What, what about next week? Like, when can this happen? And it kind of struck a little fear. What Paul's trying to do, he's not trying to stir a kind of fear in you, believer, about this rapture. He's not trying to spark fear in you. But if you're in Christ, what he wants to do is to motivate you and to comfort you. When he's speaking about the same idea of, of, of him drawing up, rapturing his saints in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what he says there in that passage is he says that, verse 18, that to comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. After basically relaying the same incident here, he says, now comfort one another with these words. What do you think about that believer? That the idea that Christ will come for you should be a comfort for your soul. That he is coming again. And there are many issues, many fears. But the fact that your Savior is coming for you is designed to spark comfort for your soul. To encourage you. Now, obviously, for those who aren't in Christ, the day of the Lord is a scary judgment awaiting for those. And that is a serious judgment. But believer, the rapture, the resurrection, the changing, the glorification of your body is something that Paul wants to encourage and comfort you with. That's a future reality, but it should have a present abiding peace upon your soul now. He wants to comfort his church. Think about it. What happens when a lost sinner comes to Christ for forgiveness? Their, their dead soul is given life instantly. And in glorification, the body is transformed instantly. Believer, God has not forgotten about you. He's not forgotten about you. And because Jesus rose, believer, you will rise too, bodily. You will rise physically, a physical body. And because this is true, if this is true about the resurrection, then what should that do about when you think about death? Many times, the reality of death, even for believers, can spark fear when you think about death. But believer, if you're in Christ, you've been washed with His blood. Your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. If you're in Christ, death is no fear for you. Because death means immediately to be present with the Lord. There is no fear in death that he says that we must put on this imperishable. Verse 53, that the perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. That death obviously has to happen. But the point he wants to bring here is that there is no fear in here, which leads us to our third reality. That if this is true, we not only know our problem, we know our promise, but believer, our third reality is the resurrection should remind you of your praise. It reminds you of your praise. The hope of the resurrection should stir praise in your soul. I'm going to say that again because I think you know that. And I think you hear that and you can say, yes, that's true. But when I say that the resurrection should stir praise in your soul, I want you to think about, I'm saying in your soul. Now, obviously, when we sing these songs here and we sing these wonderful truths about Christ, yes, we should be singing fully with a full heart. But your praise and your thanksgiving to God should not only be isolated to camp and to Sunday mornings. Do you hear me? That your thanksgiving, when you think about the hope of glory that is awaiting you in Christ, you should be giving thanksgiving to God every single day of your life. How often do you think about the hope of glory that's waiting for you? 
How often do you think about the Ferrari that's in the garage, if you will, right? And what does that do to your life now? That the reality of this resurrection sister prays in you. That if you're in Christ, you were once in dead in your sins. For some of you, maybe if you've grown up in the church, we often can lose sight of the, the impact and the reality and the miraculous work that God has done upon the believer. If I grew up in the church, I, I was saved at a young age, I believe. And so, but I think it's a tendency for, for Christians, especially in youth group, who do know Christ, you lose sight of the reality that you too were in sin. That God at one point looked at your sin and he hated it. He was disgusted with it. That you at one point were under the wrath of God. Do you realize that? That you were dead in your sins. But what happened to you? You saw the weight of your sin. To to whatever degree you could. And you saw this, this Christ who said he'll save you. Who said he'll save you if you come to me? That you maybe couldn't grasp all the deep things theologically, but there's one thing you understood. You were a sinner and Christ is a savior. And he opened your eyes to that. But even more here, he is not done with you yet. He is not done with you yet. I think you'll understand this reality of praise that this should have upon your soul once you understand this hope of the resurrection to greater depths. Once these things we're talking about the resurrection. Once you understand them to greater degrees, the greater degrees your worship will be. You get that? Because once you understand the weight and the glory of the resurrection and what that means for your soul, the greater your worship will be. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, and what that effect should have. He says that we know that when he appears, speaking of Christ, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That we will be like him in, in, in the sense of a glorified body. That this resurrection body, this physical body is a physical body, but it's an immortal body. It cannot be overcome by sin again. It cannot be overcome by death ever again. That when Christ glorifies, gives a new body to the believer, it is a new physical glorified body. And this body can never be impacted by sin ever again. I want you to go back a couple verse, one verse to um, verse 49 in, in chapter 15. Just so we can kind of narrow in, like, what is the purpose here that's happening of resurrection? Verse 49, Paul says that just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Again, Paul is looking presently. Right now, you bear the image of the earthy. Why? Because your body is earthy right now, right? You're, you're flesh, you're perishable. But he says at the end of verse 49, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. That the glorified body is going to bear the image of the heavenly. And what image it will reflect? The image of Christ. That this is, yes, about a glorified body, but it's centered on Christ. That this resurrection is centered and anchored in Christ. That it will reflect the glory of God. That the whole point now with a glorified body is this body is no longer tethered or tethered with sin. He says, and he, he says, he, he draws our eyes to that blessed moment when we'll all be changed in verses 44, 54 through 55. Look with me at the end of 54. He says, now after this happens, after our body will be changed. Actually, I'll read verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, 
a new body, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written. And what's that saying? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to whom? Thanks be to whom? To God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying here now when this happens, when your body is changed, when those who are alive, when Christ returns, those who are dead, they'll be, they'll be raised. And those who are alive, they'll be changed. And when that happens, when you have a glorified body, when you are changed to look like Christ, your body will never sin again. You'll never think a sinful thought. You'll never have a sinful action. You'll never have a sinful premonition. You'll never have anything with sin because you'll reflect Christ. You'll reflect the heavenly. You'll have a new body. And then what's going to be the saying of your mouth? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That it's going to spark that rejoicing. Why? Think about it. Why would you say that? Because for the believer who's in Christ, if you're in Christ now, you want to know what evidence? If, if you want to test the assurance of your faith, one evidence of that is you're, you're a believer, you're saved, but you still have sin and you still sin. But you hate that sin now. You hate this sin. You're no longer giving over to this sin easily. There's a struggle with sin. You are convicted when you sin. Not just because you got caught, but because you know you've sinned against the God who saved you. That as a believer here, if you're in Christ, your sin should mess you up. Because you realize you're not like Christ. Yet, fully. You've been saved. You bear the image of Christ, amen, and, and in creation, but you're not perfectly reflecting His glory. You do not have a glorified body. So now when you have a glorified body and you look like your Savior, you yearly death. Yes, death no longer has victory. Sin no longer has victory. I look like Christ. I look like my Savior. I can please Him. I can walk with Him. I can be in fellowship with Him. I can love Him truly like I never could before because He has changed me, not only inwardly, but now outwardly too. I look like my Savior. I can be and dwell with Him perfectly. That should give you rest. That should give you rejoicing. That should give you hope. And believer, if you think about that truth now, can you rejoice now? That you will one day be glorified to look like Christ. <clears throat> this is a victory cry. That when you put on immortality, when you put on imperishable, you will say, oh yes, the saying that comes about that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 25 verse 8, that Hosea talked about in chapter 13 verse 14. What they, all these, what they talked about with death, that one, finally a day is going to come when death will finally be swallowed up. And yes, it's here. Yes, I've been freed from the shackles of sin. Yes, I can love Christ because he saved me. Because he's renewed me and I look like him. This is the victory cry. You ever pour Gatorade on your coach at the end of the game? You know when the only appropriate time to do that is when, right? When? When you win. <laughs> What'd your coach do if y'all lost horribly and you pour Gatorade on him? <laughs> the reason why you pour Gatorade on him because you won. You're rejoicing. It's like, yes, we did it. That's, that's, the, that's the anger. That's the... the the essence of what's happening here is that, yes, death wears your victory. Death wears your, is your sting. Sin no longer has power. 
you will have a body that pleases God. What incredible hope and joy that sin and death are temporary enemies for the believer now. Sin and death is an enemy to some degree, but beloved, in Christ, it's a temporary enemy. It's not going to last forever because Christ will conquer it ultimately. I love Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, when it's speaking of now this hope that we have with Christ. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he shall be, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying. Or pain. The first things have passed away. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that day? I'm not asking you, do you just long to be in paradise? You hear me now? I'm not asking you, do you just long to have a life that's free of pain? That's not what I'm asking you. Although it's it's part of it. I'm asking you, do you long to be with Christ? Many people love the idea of being saved from hell, but they lose sight of the fact that you are saved from the wrath of God to be with God. Do you want to be with Christ or are you just looking to be just have some easy eternity? If that's the case, if if you just love the idea of finally just being, I I got got my, my escape free out of hell and now I get paradise. If you lost sight of Christ, you've lost the main thing. That do you want to be with this Christ? That that is the anchor of the rejoicing. Because he says in verse 57 that we read, Thanks be to God. Why? Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That the victory that you have in Christ, the victory you have in God is given through Christ. That he is the cornerstone of your praise. That because Christ accomplished, he took the wrath of God on the cross. For sin, that he took the wrath and he not only took on the wrath and removed your sin, but he gives the righteousness of his own to you. If you believe upon him, that this Christ gave everything. And when you think about this truth believer, it should spark praise in your soul that you should give thanks to God continually daily. When you think about the hope of glory that awaits you, that one day you will be with this God. That the same God who, these are theological terms, I'm assuming maybe you've heard them, that he justified you. In other words, what I say by justified you is that he declared you righteous. But not only did he justify you, but he also sanctified you. What do you you mean by sanctified you? That he cleansed you and he's making you more like his son even now. And the eternal hope for the believer is not only did he justify you and not only did he sanctify you, but he's going to glorify you. That this Christ, that this justification from God, this sanctification from God is leading to the glorification from God. That the hope of the glorification for the believer ought to provide you with increased assurance and increased joy. That you have a reason to be joyful. That if you were to die right now, believer, if you were to die before Christ returns, your spirit would go to be with the Lord. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if you were to die right now in Christ, immediately presence with the Lord in your spirit. And you will await that day when Christ will return. And you will renew and give you a full glorified body that's resurrected from the grave. And a glorified body that looks like Christ. 
that one day your body will be raised. And although your salvation is already final, if you're in Christ, it will be fully completed in your being saved from sin and death, but also from a sinful body. You'll be granted a new glorified body so that you will echo that cry. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What impact now does death have on us now? I'm walking around like Superman and kryptonite's nowhere around. That I have a new body. Death, where is your victory? That I am like my Savior who not only justified me and declared me righteous because of the merits of Christ, but who cleansed me and sanctified me and he's glorified me. These are precious truths that you should meditate on constantly. Just think about it. Think about just the fact that you have Christ's righteousness. Think about that when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your works. He looks at the works of his son and he says, I'm well pleased with you, John. I'm well pleased with you, Sarah, because I look at Christ and I see Christ works credited to your account. Because you've been justified and sanctified, you will be glorified. But here's the hope is that if you've been glorified, you will be with Christ. And if you have not been justified, I realize in a room this size, we can't assume that everyone in this room knows this Jesus, loves this Jesus. I imagine you've heard much of this Jesus. Your parents may know this Jesus and trust in this Jesus. But I'm talking to you. You realize when you stand before the throne that God said he's placed eternity in our hearts. Every single person, even in this room, outside this room, knows that there is eternity awaiting. There's no question. I don't have to convince you of that. You know in your heart of hearts. But the question is, when you stand before this God, what will your plea be? What will you say? Where is your hope? I'm not trying to scare you. I want to provide you with the reality of where the hope is. That even right now, if you're unsure, if you realize you've just been playing church, that if you realize you know much of these sermons, you know these lessons, but it has not gripped your heart. If that is you right now, I want you to know your plea right now could be Christ and Christ crucified. That if you cry out to this Christ right now, your sins can be washed and he will forgive and he will welcome you freely right now. That if you realize you've been living a lie, that you, you say you're a Christian, but you don't love this Christ, that you don't walk with this Christ, you have not been changed by this Christ. If that is you this evening, I want you to know the hope that is waiting for you if you receive it, to receive this Christ, his finished work on the cross, that he was, di- he was, he was cru- crucified for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Cling to this Christ right now, and this hope is yours. What do you think about the reality? You know the person in Scripture who spoke most about hell? is Jesus. He spoke most about hell in Scripture. And obviously I can only just make assumptions. I'm not God. But Jesus, in hell, the unbeliever is under the wrath of God. 
his judgment. It's not God is like absent from hell. I used to hear that when I was younger, that God, hell is just a place where it's so awful because God is not there. But no, hell is just the present judgment of God and unbelievers who have who suppressed his knowledge and in sin and rebellion. It's the active presence of God's judgment and wrath for eternity. And why would Jesus speak so much about this? Because he knows it's awaiting those who reject him. And yet he offers salvation. Oh, he offers hope. He offers hope. And that hope is waiting for anyone who receives it. Believer, we know that this victory is found in Christ. Believer, are you thankful for this victory? The reality is, we know our problem. You know the promise. You'll be changed. And your praise is anchored in the work of Christ. And also realize that God is not done with you yet. Finally, the last reality is that the resurrection reminds us of our purpose. It reminds us of our purpose. Because all this is true. If all this is true, what we've been talking about the resurrection, Paul really kind of just ends this whole beautiful summation of the resurrection at the end of chapter 15 at verse 58. Having established all that he established from the very beginning, speaking about what is the gospel? What happens to those who die in Christ? What happens to those who are alive when Christ returns? If the resurrection is true, what does that mean for us now? The fourth reality is the resurrection reminds us of your purpose. What is your purpose? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, what is the purpose? Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? If this is true, if the resurrection is true, if the hope of glory waiting for us is true, that Christ will swallow up victory in his return. If this is true, what does that mean about your purpose today? Right? What does that mean for me right now? You are to be steadfast. In other words, seated, well seated, established and immovable. And how, how can you do that? He's saying here, in other words, to be steadfast and immovable in what you believe. To be steadfast, in other words, to be seated, anchored now, as if you're sitting in a tree and sitting in a chair, anchored in this truth. You think of a huge ship is anchored in an anchor, right? It stays still because that anchor sinks down. You are steadfast, seated, immovable. That's the first thing. You are to be sure, confident, grounded in this truth. If this is true, then you are not to be moved by anything else. Do you realize now that when you turn on the TV, you have millions of dollars poured into changing your mind about these things. That there are advertisers who spend millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to make you think other things other than God. They want you to think about their product. They want you to think what you think about gender. They want you to change what you think about people, about the future. They want to change how you think about style, about what people think, what's the best way to get people to like you. They're constantly trying to change your mind. That's what a commercial is. They're trying to advertise, trying to change your mind. But Paul's saying, be steadfast, immovable, grounded in this truth. That if this is true, this changes everything because nothing can sway you from anything else. You can't be swayed about anything. Your promise, your hope is secured in this truth that Christ is returning. He's returning for you and you are to be immovable. That no matter what other philosophy comes in, no matter what other ideology comes into your classroom, no matter what other truth that people are believing on social media, you are steadfast in what? The truth of God's word. Be steadfast, immovable. But not only that, you are to let your belief produce work. 
Be steadfast, immovable, but even more, let it produce work. So your purpose is to be grounded in these truths. Fill your heart with this truth. Be, be soiled with the truth of God's word. Be anchored in it. Long for the teaching of God's word. Be under it. Absorb your mind with it. But also let it produce work. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding. In other words, increasing in this work. Why? Because your toil is not in vain. Look how he describes that work. He calls it toil. You catch that? It's not easy work. Excuse me. (laughs) If that's true, this is not easy work. He calls it toil. Because this is hard, rigorous work sometimes. It is not easy. You'll sweat. You'll labor. You'll groan. You'll be exhausted in these things. But you are to be abounding in here. That your solid convictions should produce fruitful service. Be abounding in these things. It's going to be tough. It will be hard. You will sweat, but it's not in vain. Once you think about it, when you play team sports, you ever got to the end of a significant championship, of a regional championship, CIFs, or just our country, or countywide, citywide rec championship. You worked hard as a team, game after game. You won the divisionals. You won the semifinals. Finally made it to the finals, and you won as a team. How exhausted are you after that championship? Are you not exhausted? Are you not sweating? Do you not stink? Right? Because you've been sweating. You've been working. But do you look at that work and you're like, man, I wish I didn't work for this trophy. You're like, man, this trophy was nothing. Yeah, I could have been watching. I was going to say Spongebob, but I know that's out of date. (laughs) I could have been watching. I could have been at home on the couch. Look, this trophy means nothing. No. I mean, you worked hard for that trophy, didn't you not? You sweat for that trophy, but was it in vain? Did you work for nothing? No. It was all for this prize. You remember that your toil is for the Lord, and it's never in vain. Your toil is in the Lord. Now, even though you're a teenager, I know your, your constraints in terms of your freedom are limited. You're in your parents' household, and rightly so. You're under their, their authority. But think about ways. I want you to think about, even discussing your small groups, what ways, as a believer in Christ, as a teenager, can you be abounding in the work of the Lord? If you believe in this truth, if Christ is your Savior, if you look for His coming, return, if you look for this glorified body, will you be freed from sin and unified with God? How can you be not only steadfast and movable, but how can you be abounding in the work of the Lord now? How can you be serving your church body now? How can you be serving? How can you be helping now even? How can I be working to exalting God in my congregation, in my life? How can I be working to encourage the believers in my church? How can I be working to evangelizing the lost? I mean, there are many countless ways. We can't go through all of them. But even think about if you have unbelievers in your life. Think of an unbeliever at school, in your neighborhood. Think of just one person that you can commit to pray for. Commit to pray for them daily. And pray and, and, and develop a relationship with them. Be friends with them. Let them know that they love that that you love them and share the truth with them. But it comes from praying because you love Christ. You want them to see this Christ that saved you. You're praying for them. You're looking for conversations with them. You're having a good relationship, building rapport with them. And you say, hey, what do you do when you're stressed? You know what? Can Can I share what I do? I pray. You know why I pray? Let me tell you what God has done for me. Can, can, I, can I share that with you? Is that okay? If they say, no, I don't want to hear that. Can't force their ear. 
But you know what most of the time people say? Why? Why do you pray? What do you believe? But it starts there because you realize you want to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Everything you do should be for the glory of God. That doesn't mean that you just have to sit and read the Bible 24 hours a day, but you're anchored in how can I have fruitful service to God? Be purified. The resurrection should purify your perspective on life. You realize your problem. We still have this fleshly body, but I know my promise that Christ will glorify this lowly body. And I realize my praise that I will worship God day after day because I know what awaits me and I know what he's done for me. And now I also know my purpose. I will be steadfast in this conviction and I will be abounding in fruitful service to this God who saved me. I long for this Christ and that purifies my perspective. And that's why First John chapter 3, verse 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed upon himself, fixed upon him, upon Christ, purifies himself. If you have this hope fixed upon you, you're purified by this hope because you realize Christ is returning. And I'm purified to realize what matters now is not the things that I think are really important. I'm now heavenly minded because I realize now I am an earthly good because of what makes me in eternity. The resurrection should purify your perspective on life once you realize your problem, the promise God has for you, the praise it should stir in you, and now your purpose to walk in that. Don't let this be something you just know. You should know and defend the resurrection. You should know why it matters to the Christian faith, but you should know even more, why does it matter to you? How does it change your life? Let's pray. Our God, we do need you to know and to walk in truth. Would you coat this truth in our hearts to not only just know these things about Christ, but to love Christ, to worship Christ, to walk with Christ. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for what you've done in him. We rejoice in these truths in Christ's name. Amen.